Pressing on in our series in Matthew this morning in chapter 4, looking or beginning to look at verses 12 through 17, tribes, nations, dishonor, and light, part 1. And we'll just see how deep into Matthew chapter 4 we're able to get this morning immediately Well, not immediately, but following the temptation of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, proclaiming the gospel, can and is a difficult thing. And I want you to consider a bit of the spiritual and emotional roller coaster that John and Christ have been on up to this point. After the emotional highs of Christ's baptism and John looking at Jesus and going, it should be the other way around, it should be you and and, and not me, and Jesus says, let it be so for now, for the fulfilling of all righteousness. His baptism, the visible descent of the Holy Spirit upon him and the word of the Father speaking authoritatively from heaven that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine being there for that? I mean, just for a moment, can you imagine what that must have looked like? Friends, I don't know what it looks like when the Father pulls back heaven enough that He can speak to His Son, but I can tell you this, under normal circumstances, you can't get there from here. The Spirit descending upon Him, my beloved Son, the one that I have this particular affection for, the one that pleases my very soul. When I consider all the thoughts and all the possibilities of my infinite mind, I look and I go, this one pleases me. The revealing of Jesus as Israel's Messiah. And immediately from all of that into 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. Now, over the last couple of years, we've got, I know a lot of you do too, watch that survival show alone. Folks, a lot of guys can't make it in the wilderness for 40 days if they're not fasting. And after watching that one, I'm pretty sure that would be me. 40 days of fasting is enough to cause organ failure in some humans. And here he is out in the wilderness. It is hot. It is dry. It is inhospitable. The area that he's talking about is covered in pits of bitumen. That is natural tar pitch. There, it smells like sulfur and rotten eggs all the time. And there's a crust of sulfury salt on everything. Most of us have never fasted more than three days. And he fasts for 40 with all of the physical and emotional distress that comes along with that, only at the height of that particular pursuit to have Satan himself show up to tempt him, try him, the most evil, the most cunning being that has ever been created doing everything he can to pierce the Son of God through. That's a big swing. 
And now he's on the lamb. Because in reality, he's just getting started. Now I say this, because whether you're new in the faith or well along in your walk, you need to understand what is at hand. If you're new in your faith, you need to be told what to expect. And if you're well along in the walk of your faith, you need to be encouraged that you may continue well in it. And the reality is this, is that proclaiming the kingdom of heaven can, will be, and is difficult in the midst of a fallen world that opposes the message. It's difficult. It's difficult because of things we do to ourselves and our fallenness and our sin. It's difficult because of other people's fallenness and sin. And it's difficult because it is spiritually opposed at a higher level than me and you can even really understand. Guys, I need you to know it's difficult. If you're a new Christian, whether that means you're an adult or whether you're in junior high, let me assure you, that proclaiming the gospel and the kingdom of heaven to your peers is going to be difficult. Here's the deal, it shouldn't be. When we consider the condition we're in in this country with all the privileges and, and the rights we have, the, the idea that we might get a little social pushback on us really bothers me that it bothers me. It shouldn't bother me. But kid, let me tell you something. If you're walking the halls of the junior high or the high school or the elementary school right now, it's hard. Now look, God's going to ask you to do hard things, okay? But it's hard. It is hard. If it was easy, and I'm not getting on you, I just want you to be introspective. If it was easy, you would have shared Christ with more of your lost contemporaries this week than you actually did. And I know that's true because it was true when I was there for me and things were a lot easier then than they are now. And it's still true for me today as an adult. If proclaiming the gospel was easy, I, Brian Williams, would have shared it with more people this week than I actually did. It's hard. It's hard. The fact of it is that proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand is difficult. But I would tell you to be encouraged. Because our hope is not of this world. Paul assures us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's difficult. It's not just difficult for our kids, it's difficult for our adults. If you work in the public or corporate sector, it is becoming increasingly difficult. The stakes are getting higher and higher and higher. And many of you are having a hard time trying to figure out how to thread the needle that allows you to do what the kingdom of Jesus Christ commands of us. And, and praise God for you for being unwavering in that. While still trying to figure out how to be able to do it in such a way that you can also, as a distant second, but also an important one, keep your job and make your mortgage. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of all people most to be pitied. You see, it works like this. When the light is shined into the darkness, two things are always found there. 
In John chapter 3, in verse 19 through 21, Jesus will say this, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people have loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For, here's the first thing you'll find, everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and he does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So when light is shown in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it, friends, that's John chapter 1, and a huge point that underpins this sermon. When the light is shown in the darkness, there will always be two things discovered. There will be those that do wicked things and hate the light, and there will be those discovered that are true and come to the light because what is happening in them is being Carried out not by men, but by God himself. When you shine the light into the darkness, therefore you're going to find some, some people and some things that do not like having the light shined in their face. As a matter of fact, you're going to find many of them that don't like it. And additionally, this is a fallen world. And so not only do we have others that we have to be concerned with that make this difficult. Not only do we have our own flesh and its fallenness that makes things difficult, but the nature of a fallen world is that much of God's sovereign plan that he is working in proclaiming the kingdom of heaven through his people is being worked out in the midst of very difficult, hard, and sometimes plain old evil things. And that reality can become compounding. Have you ever been there before? Where you thought, you know, Lord, of all the stuff I've got on my plate right now, have you ever had that thing come up that you're like, just not one more thing? You think to yourself, Lord, if, if, if these would just come like by the dozen, see, because there was probably a time when you thought, Lord, if you just send this to me one at a time, I could handle it, right? Now you're at the point where you're thinking, Lord, if you would just send it in a pack of 12, Right? And not the baker's dozen, because the baker's dozen, the 13th one, may be the one that breaks this camel's back. I find myself saying it way more than I would like, and it betrays some stuff about the way that we feel probably more than we think. It betrays the thoughts of the heart as to how we're approaching difficult things. But I would tell you the foundation of today's sermon and getting started in Matthew chapter 4 verses 12 through 17 is this, is that Christ understands and Christ is victorious. Christ understands and Christ is victorious. And so here we see Jesus leaving Nazareth. We see him leaving his boyhood home where he has lived since the return from Egypt when his life was no longer directly in danger. We see Jesus leaving his boyhood home, and there is no ticker tape parade. They're not cheering him as he goes. This is not a celebrated departure. And so when Christ hears that John has been arrested, he departs and he goes to Galilee. So why is Christ on the Lamb? You know, it's kind of a funny thought to have, but I mean, that's basically what's going on here. It's time to get out of Dodge. It's time to get out of Nazareth. And so he does. But why is Christ on the lamb? I can tell you this right as we get going. It's not because he's overly cautious. 
It's not because he's nervous. It's not because he's worried. It's not because he's scared. It's not because he's wringing his hands going, oh, what if? Instead, the things that have occurred to John the Baptist are not something that simply puts danger on Christ's radar. But John is something particular to him. He is his forerunner. The spirit and the power of Elisha are upon him so that he is the Elisha to come if you will accept it. Therefore, whatever happens to John is going to happen to him exponentially. In John chapter 3 and verses 25 through 30, John the Baptist speaks about this. I know that's a lot of John. So in the Gospel of John, speaking about John the Baptist, in chapter 3 in verse 25 through 30, actually it's, it's going to be John speaking for himself. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, that being, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The only one... The one, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. Now, there is a moment in time where the ministry of John the Baptist is the single most important ministry that is occurring in the kingdom of heaven on this earth anywhere. There is a time when John's ministry is more important than any other. There's no other preacher. There's no other synagogue. There's not anybody. There's not another prophet doing anything else that is on par with what John's doing because he is the one who has been sent to declare that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and to make straight the paths of the Lord. And that day has come to a close. And you want to talk about emotional highs and lows. That day has come to a close. And so, I think John's probably being tested and tempted here a little bit too, even if it's not quite as, quite as clear. You have this Jew come to him, and he wants to leverage the desires of John's flesh. And he says, look at this. This guy that you bore witness to, he's over here, and he's baptizing, and gee, John, as, as, as happening as your ministry was, there's more people coming to him than there is coming to you. And what does John say? I know my role. I was the one that came before him. I was the friend of the bridegroom, not the bridegroom himself. He is the one that has the bride. And now that he is here, it is time for him to increase and me to decrease. And hey, man, if you got to exit the stage for somebody else, there's not, and this goes to the point that I was making about John's ministry being the most important ministry. If you're going to exit the stage to someone else, man, you can't exit it to anyone more profoundly worthy than Jesus Christ. And so there he is. He's like, man, this isn't my deal. I've done my thing. I've been faithful. I've done the hard stuff. I've, you know, I've wore the camel's hair jacket and the leather belt. I've ate the honey and the bugs. I've done all the stuff, man. It's time for me to decrease and for him to increase. 
And what you see is a forerunning prophet that was making straight the path of a king being replaced in that path by the king himself. And as Christ increased, he will experience exponentially anything that came upon John. And so John is arrested. Do you know what John's arrested for? John's John's not arrested because he offended the religious authorities of his day. Now that's what we're going to see with Christ where then they leverage the government against him. John's not being arrested for offending the religious authorities. John is being arrested for the offense of human governance. And so in Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 through 5, and we'll, we'll do this in detail when we get to Matthew 14, but in Matthew chapter 14, in verses 3 through 5, it says that in verse 3 that Herod... This is not Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch. This is Herod the Great's son. So this is the son of the guy that tried to kill Christ in his infancy and succeeded in killing untold numbers of baby boys under two years of age in Israel. This is his son. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. This is his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And so Herod, like many of these despot kings, thinks he can set his hand to whatever he would like, and what he would like is his brother's wife. And it appears, from what we see later on, that she likes the idea of being the main guy's squeeze instead of the main guy's sister-in-law. And John has been speaking against this. Specifically, like he's specifically been calling Herod the Tetrarch out because what he is doing with his brother's wife, that it's not lawful for him to have her. And Herod doesn't like that. It's undermining his power, it's undermining his authority. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Held him to be a prophet. Now, what we're going to find out is Jesus does not hear about John's imprisonment through the grapevine, but instead is told by John's disciples themselves. And so here you have John. He's standing on the foundational word of God. He's speaking to the culture and to the power brokers of his day, and what he sees in them falls short of the clear teaching of Scripture, and John says so. And that is sufficient to get him thrown in prison with Herod wanting to put him to death. He really does, but he fears the people and he knows that the people hold him as a prophet. And while Herod Antipas' power is great, it is not as great as that as his father. And he has the same paranoia that his father had. He seems to have inherited that from him. That somebody was going to come and try to take his position and his throne and his crown. And so he would really like to kill John, but he's not sure enough of his power base, so he doesn't do it. You know, contrary to what is often popular belief today, you cannot separate the proclaiming of the gospel from social political commentary. You can't. You can't do it. Because, and the reason you can't is because the definition of society and the politics that it produces in any given day is all a reflection of the people that are in it. And so you can't. 
And so to our, to our students that are walking the halls every day, look, figuring out how to, figuring out how to cut this line, I, I'm not going to lie to you, it's tough. And Pastor Brian don't have five quick points so you, so you can get it right. But you will have to address the social construct of your day. You have to. Or it will steamroll you. And you have to do it in a way that is based on Scripture. And when you do, it's going to be hard. I wish I could tell you. Part of me wishes I could tell you. Not all of me. Part of me wishes I could tell you that there is a way to shave all of that stuff off the gospel so that you can just get down to this thing that you can tell people that will be good news to them and save their soul but won't be hard. That gospel doesn't exist. That gospel doesn't exist because the reason the gospel exists is because men are sinners and the wages of sin is death. And because of that, in his infinite goodness, God saw fit to put Christ forward as the propitiation. That means the payment in full for me and for you and for all the rest that are called according to his name that do what is true when they see the light because what is happening in them is being carried out by God. Now, Because that's why the gospel exists. Therefore, those who embrace that world that is bringing death are always going to be offended by the gospel. Because it says what you're championing is death. And this is what life looks like. Come to life that you may live. That's always going to be offensive to those that love death. If you love darkness, you hate the light. And it's going to be hard. And here's the deal, guys. They're going to hate it right up until the moment God makes them his. They're going to hate it right to the moment that he says, that one right there, live. This is why it's hard. We proclaim the kingdom of heaven. We do so inside the church and outside the church. After all, Paul will write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5 through 5 and say, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, which is exactly what John was doing that got him thrown in prison. He was reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. And he ran into a man who would have none of it and had the power to do something about it. Friends, this is not just speaking of inside the church. As a matter of fact... It's speaking at least as much, and I'm not going to exegete 2 Timothy this morning, but it's speaking at least as much of what happens outside the church as it is inside. The reason we know is because of this. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So this charge that Paul just gave to Timothy to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching in season or out of season, it doesn't matter if they like it or don't, stick with it. This charge is to complete the ministry, not just in the church, but also as the ministry of evangelism. Let me tell you, in the kingdom of this world, oh, they would love it. They would love it. Kids, adults, they would love it if you would just keep the gospel to where the gospel is supposed to be. Keep it inside this little box right here. 
all the principalities, all the powers, all the world holders, the sons of God that the kingdoms of men fall under that we've looked at over the last several weeks, both in Sunday school and in the morning service and on Wednesday nights in Ephesians 6 and Deuteronomy 32, they are all diametrically opposed to the kingdom of heaven. You may think it's God, country, and apple pie. And while you may have very godly men, sometimes predominantly godly men, at particular times in history, in particular governments, and in particular places that are God-fearing men, the reality is, is government isn't for the kingdom of heaven. It's not. Best I can tell, there is one in this hierarchy that stands with the truth, and it's Michael himself, and Israel got him. And so whether it, it doesn't matter if it's Herod Antipas, that seems to be a more fitting name than the Tetrarch. You know, Tetrarch almost sounds noble. Antipas sounds icky. So we'll go with that. He's a pretty icky dude. It doesn't matter if it's him or some alphabet agency. Take your pick. The fact of the matter is, is that in the proclamation of the gospel, it is always going to grate against the reality of the kingdom of this world. And it does for John. It comes to a very, we'll call it sticky, I think is an appropriate term. Herod was kind of an icky guy, and John comes to a sticky end. In Matthew chapter 14, in verse 6, it says that when Herod's birthday came, now remember, Herod would like to kill him for, for embarrassing him publicly and rebuking him according to Scripture, but he's fearful of the people, which only works in your favor. That kind of status quo only works in your favor as long as the fear that is protecting you and someone else is the greatest fear they have. And as soon as that changes, the status quo no longer stands. And so when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now, this is Herod's birthday. When you're the Tetrarch and you have a birthday party, all the most important people are there. And so here he is in front of the most important constituents of his kingdom. And he tells this girl, who apparently put on a pretty impressive show, I will give you anything you ask. And prompted by her mother, a darling woman, prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. He was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This is what's at stake. So when John is arrested, being the forerunner of Christ and knowing that anything that is coming to John is going to exponentially come to him, we are not talking about that Jesus might get arrested and have to call somebody from church to come make his bail. It, it, it's not a situation where if he gets put in jail for proclaiming the gospel for a short period of time here in America, you go down to county, the church bails you out, and you become somewhat of a cult hero martyr for it. 
They put John's head on an actual platter and brought it to this young girl so that she in turn at the party could present it to her mother. Stakes are high. Stakes are high. And so Christ, when he hears about John being put in prison, even though John is not dead yet, he understands what's going on here. When he hears about him being put in prison, he departs and he leaves, even his own hometown. And he departs to Galilee. But what is not included in Matthew is that before his departure from Nazareth, Jesus preaches one final sermon. And that sermon is recorded in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4 in verses 14 through 19. And so in Luke chapter 4, in verse 14, it said, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus has been traveling around a little bit. This is post-temptation, coming forth victorious in the power of the Spirit. He spent a little time in Galilee. The people are hearing about who he is. And he returns home to Nazareth. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. Now, the way that it worked in the synagogues was they had a, a large room where the, they would meet for worship and for the reading of the word particularly. There were seats in the middle, and there were seats all the way around the edge, and these were considered the best seats. And then there was what the Jews referred to as the Moses seat. And the Moses seat was called that because it was the place you always sat where when you read the law. And there's some fascinating stories I can tell you about the Moses seat, but now is not the time. We need to keep moving. So Jesus is sitting in the midst of the congregation in the synagogue. He would have been sitting in the Moses seat. They hand him the scroll. You understand this isn't a scroll, right? We're talking like scroll. Hands him the scroll of Isaiah. And this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus reads from Isaiah chapter 61. It's one of the most glorious first coming messianic passages in all of the Old Testament. And everybody there would have understood, and Jesus may have read more than what is quoted here. We don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is this, is that after Moses, there was no other prophet that the Jews revered more than Isaiah. Quoting from Isaiah is like quoting for us from Romans or the Gospel of John. Even if he didn't read any more than this, they would have known the context of what he was saying. Back in Isaiah in chapter 61, if we could just for a moment, in verses 1 through 4, we're not going to read a whole lot, but in chapter 61 in verses 1 through 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, and to give them beautiful headdresses instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that they may be glorified. And they shall build up the ancient ruins, and they shall rise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. This is the last sermon that Jesus Christ preaches in Nazareth before he departs for Galilee after hearing about the arrest of John. And this is what he tells him. He says, this, what I'm telling you today is sufficient in the power and the glory of God to fix devastations that have previously gone on for generations. You hear about generational sin? Do you know what generational sin is? You know, that's where the, the, the concept here, it's different than original sin. It's this idea that there's a particular sin that was in your grandfather or your grandmother or whatever, and because of the nature of human beings, us having the likeness of our fathers and mothers and being Taught by them, that ends up getting passed down from one to the other to the other to the other to the other. Sometimes it's divorce, sometimes it's violence, sometimes it's substance abuse, sometimes it's sexual sin. The list goes on and on and on. He says, look, there has been generational devastation amongst you. And what I'm declaring to you today is not sufficient just to fix you, but to put a stop to that. Something different is coming because there has been shame amongst the tribes of Israel in the past. And what I'm telling you today is sufficient to stop it. And more importantly, the craziest part, the craziest part is in Luke chapter 4. He says this. He rolled up the scroll. This is the equivalent of a first century mic drop. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began, you could have heard a pin drop. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They all know it's about the Messiah. And he says, I'm it. I'm it. I'm the one that will let you build up generational devastations. You want to see the wrath of your God and righteousness? You will see it. You want to see the mercy of your God and grace? You will see it. I'm him. That's what he says. And initially, they loved it. They loved it, man. They were eating it up like Sunday dinner. They couldn't get enough. They all spoke well of him and marveling at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Unbelievable. Man, they loved it. Couldn't get enough. Until Jesus starts stepping on their human expectation. And notice, notice that, that this doesn't go, that this situation, what propels it to take a turn south is not something they do first. It's something Christ does first. Because in John chapter 2, Jesus says he doesn't need the testimony of men about themselves, for he himself knows what's in the heart of a man. 
And they're all giving him the nods and they're, they're all giving him the lip service and they're grinning and they're smiling and they're shaking their heads and they're marveling at how gracious his speech is and their heart is far from him. And he knows it. And he knows his time here has come. And so he begins to press them. And he said to them in verse 23, Doubtless you will, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. For what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Show us some tricks. Heal some folks. Do something spectacular. Confirm our faith. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elisha when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. And Elisha was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. He said, man, times were hard in Israel and times were hard because God made them hard. He shut up the heavens for three years and it did not rain. And that's tough on a modern economy. It was sure bad on one then. There were lots of widows in Israel that were hungry, but he only sent the prophet to one, and it wasn't an Israelite. Now, if you know anything about their theology and their view of self and self-worth, this is a massive statement. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. Which, guys, if you go on a tour today, they will take you up to the Golan Heights, and they still have a militarized border with Syria to this day. They are not over it. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. You know why? Because the Jews understand that of all the kingdoms of the world, they are the Bait. They are the family. They are his portion. They are his inheritance. They are his chosen people and here you've got the guy that has just claimed himself to be the messiah and everybody's on board for it and the next thing out of his mouth is boys i'm about to be out of here i'm going to go talk to the tribes that you seem to find way more shameful than you and even to the gentiles dogs like me and you used to be i'm going to go speak to them and after all you know how it was in elijah's day in elisha's day there were plenty of widows but it was sidon there were plenty of lepers that needed to be cleansed, but it was a Syrian. They were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff, but passing through their midst, he went away. So understand, when you read in Matthew that then having heard that John was arrested, Jesus, Jesus departed to Galilee, this was not just some kind of practical, hey boys, looks like the, the heat's getting a little heavy around here, think it's time to go. No, this is a situation where he knows that John is the forerunner because he's the one that sent him. He's the forerunner. Anything that happens to John is going to exponentially happen to him. John has already been arrested. Herod wants him dead. His his so-called wife and daughter-in-law are going to make sure that John ends up dead with his head on a plate and in the midst of that he preaches one of the awesomest sermons that could ever get preached where the Messiah himself reads about himself in Isaiah in the middle of the synagogue and says man I'm him and I will fix all of your stuff and they say okay let's kill him that's how he ends up out of town you gotta love Matthew's brevity right? then when he heard he departed for Galilee. 
all because they had expectations about who they thought the Messiah was going to be and how they thought his kingdom was going to look that went unfulfilled in them. Guys, one of the great dangers, one of the great dangers of walking in this world is to have expectations that we want to attribute to being God's expectations that are not actually God's expectations. And if they're not God's expectations, then they don't get fulfilled. But if we have aligned these two together in our minds and our hearts as being the same thing, then we are devastated when the fulfillment does not come. And as fallen humans, what I do and what you may find yourself doing is looking in the mirror and not recognizing that the problem was your false expectation about who Christ was going to be to you, but instead think the problem was Christ and not fulfilling it. Man, if God's good, why is this so hard? If God is for us, why do things hurt so bad? If God is hemming us in and looking after us, why is it just one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other? Jesus is not what they're expecting their Messiah to look like. And so what I would tell you today, but I want you to hang with me, I want you to just think, well, that's Pastor Brian. What I would tell you is this, if Christ offends you, then what you should do is get over it and embrace him. Think how different things would have been in Nazareth on that day if instead of being filled with wrath because of the disappointment of their expectation that they had got over what they expected and embraced Christ for who he was, would it not be a terrible thing for Christ to depart from you because you were offended by him? Isn't it better to not be offended? Isn't that better so that that you can come and not have Christ depart from you and go away to somewhere else? I would have you note, now see we can say that, what's what's the prescription here? The prescription, the diagnosis, they're offended because they had expectation that Christ wasn't going to fulfill. What's the prescription? The prescription is get over it and embrace Christ for who he is. That is all true. Stand on it all day long. It's also a lot easier for me to say than for me to do. And it's a whole lot easier for you to hear me say than for you to go do. Christ handles it perfectly. Of course he does. He's perfect. John the Baptist? Man, John's handled some tough stuff. But the compounding weight is starting to show on John. In Matthew chapter 11, and we're only going to touch on this today because we'll do it when we get to Matthew chapter 11, but... In Matthew chapter 11, the man who kicked in his mother's womb by the movement of the Holy Spirit at the presence of Christ, the man who sacrificed all he sacrificed, lived apart from the rest of the world, ate bugs and honey and took the heat from the Pharisees and the Jews and and said, in humility, I'm not the Christ. He is. I must decrease. He must increase. The, the man who had the honor of being the one that got to baptize him so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. And was there the day that the Spirit descended on him. 
And the father said, this is my beloved son who I am well pleased. This guy who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That guy. The guy that had the greatest, most empowered, most important ministry of anyone on the planet. In the immediate days before the revealing of Christ. That guy, the weight's getting him. And in Matthew, or sorry, in, yes, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, it says, Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Man, this guy that knows all this, that has done all of this, all of these hard things, the compounding weight is getting to him. And he sends to Christ and says, are you really him? Why? John's circumstances are not what he thought they would be. Elijah is supposed to get caught up to heaven in a chariot of fire, not caught up to heaven because his head's on a platter. Are you the one or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him. And guys, let me, let me tell you what Jesus does here. He does not fit your mold or mine. He doesn't fit your mold or mine. He doesn't say, hey, listen, I ask you to do hard things. Get over it. He doesn't say that. And he does not come and go, oh, poor baby, listen, it'll be okay. You're just having a bad day. He doesn't do that either. What Christ does is calmly reassure him with a truth that he is already aware of but needs to hear again. That's what he does. Jesus answered them, go and tell John. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor of good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now it says that now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, that's when he asked. If you're hearing about all of this, you already know all of these things, as miraculous as they are, the issue you're having is not with whether or not he's actually the Christ. Is, is he, is he going to be good to me? Or is he going to leave me in this prison until Herod finally succumbs and cuts my head off? And the thing is, is the answer is yes, he is. And Jesus says, you go and tell him. You go tell him the stuff he already knows. Because what John needs here is just, he just needs that reality check. Don't beat him up and don't baby him. Just tell him. Tell him and tell him this. Blessed is he who is not offended by me. Okay. So with what's left of today's sermon, I just have a bit. I have two points. I have two points. One of them has three sub points, but they're quick. I promise. Number one. When you find yourself with the realities of compounding difficulties in the midst of the kingdom of this world. And you start feeling more like John than Jesus. Which is basically me every day. Then the first thing I want to say is this. God is good. He's good. He's good in at least three ways. First of all, we would say that God is good in the midst of the trial and the pain. 
God is good right then at that moment, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when the, 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 greatest, <laughs> the greatest prophet of his age is in prison going, man, is this the one? Are you the one or not? Even at that moment, God is, is good. He's good, friend. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 4. Look what is being produced by this hardship. In the midst of this hardship, in the midst of John being in prison, Jesus being run out of town by a murderous mob and fleeing to Galilee, in the midst of, of as much as it breaks your heart to know those people in Nazareth had a chance at salvation and they said, no, we don't want it. In the midst of all of that, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Nephtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Nephtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them the light is dawned. Friends, I quote it every single Christmas Eve. And we're going to look at detail in, into the depth of it next week in Isaiah chapter 9. Galilee of the Gentiles, the way of the sea, a people dwelling in darkness, upon them has dawned a great light. God is good right in the midst of the hardship. He's good in the midst of the trial. He's good in the midst of the pain. When you think Satan is just about to succeed in actually getting it to pierce you through, he's good right then even if you can't see it. Even if, even if you're John going, hey man, are you the one or should we look for another to come? And he's like, dude, I'm out here fulfilling Isaiah 9 now. Real time. He's good now. Number two. There is future good yet to come out of it. There is more good coming. God is good now in the midst of hardship, that, even hardship that brings about doubt. He's good in the midst of it, and there is more future good yet to come. You know, the first sermon that is recorded in Matthew after Jesus departs to Galilee is nothing less than the greatest sermon that has ever been spoken on this planet. It's the Sermon on the Mount itself. And i got to tell you guys, I am tempted to drag my feet in the exegesis of chapter 4 because I fear it. It looks like it's an inch deep. It goes down for miles. Stares into the very soul of a man. He's good in the moment, even if you don't recognize it, there is future good that is yet to come out of the things that are unfolding. And then before we cover the third sub-point on point number one, that God is good, I want to move on to point number two. Jesus Christ is not indifferent to your suffering. Jesus Christ is not indifferent to your pain. We've looked at this over the last couple of weeks, I mean, it's one of the whole points of Jesus' temptation. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and the blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those being tempted. Because he's being run out of town by a murderous mob, he is able to do something for John in the midst of his trial and even in the midst of his doubt. He goes on in Hebrews in verse chapter 4 and says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with your weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in a time of need. God is good in the midst of these things. He's good in there's future good that's coming out of it that you haven't seen yet. Before we get to point three, Jesus Christ is not indifferent to your pain. He's not indifferent to your suffering, Mount Zion. This is not fatalism. I can digress from the notes for just a moment. I'm almost done, I promise. I'm not going to hold you real late today. I would have always told you Hebrews has always been a book that's fascinated me. I, I appreciate it early in my career. I would have always told you that Jesus Christ is not indifferent to your pain. It's true. It's true. Some people carry pain better than others. It's the natural reality. Um, you know, you hear about the guy that works in the steel mill gets his fingers hand smashed, doesn't know that his peaky fingers no longer connected until he takes, you know, lunch break two hours later and pulls his glove off and it stays in the glove. One of those kind of things. There are people that are like that. I would have always told you that Christ isn't indifferent to your suffering. Intellectually, functionally, I don't know that I understand it the way I do now. Have you, you ever been there? Have you, have you had something in Scripture that you've looked at and you're like, well, I've always known that, but all of a sudden it becomes real to you in a way that it, and it has depth to it that it did not have before? That's, that's what I'm talking about. Listen, we're tough, and that's good. You need to be. It's tough stuff. But Jesus isn't indifferent to your pain. And you don't need to be indifferent to it either. And for those of you who are particularly tough, for those of you that have the kind of mentality that you're like, look, man, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that took my glove off and didn't know the finger was missing and, you know, rubbed some dirt on it and had lunch and went back to work. Then you need to be particularly careful. Because if it can get John, it can get me and it can get you. 
Guys, and I'll tell you, it came to a head for me right before church camp. When I was trying with everything I had, I experienced something I'd never experienced before in my life. Friends, Brian William can produce. I can produce the product, and I couldn't. I have projects that are, that are hard for me to get started on. I'm one of those guys, can't get going, can't get going. If you can ever get it to kick off the edge of the cliff, man, the thing will ride itself. And I, and I was at a point of literal crisis. Because no matter what I did, no matter what I read, no matter what I prayed, I could not write. And the Lord told me very clearly, I will not, you, will not allow you to write about the things of my joy when you are not walking in it. And it's funny how you get there. You don't even know you're there until you are. And I looked back at the last four years and the things that we have been through as a people, the things that we have been through as a nation, the things that we've been through here as the body at Mount Zion and that we're still going through right now. And buddy, some of it is hard. It's hard. It's hard on you. It's hard on your pastor. It's hard on your elders. It's hard on your deacons. It's hard on us. It's hard. And folks, I'll confess that I was indifferent to how hard it was, even so much that I was indifferent to how hard it was on me. And it'll get you to a place where you're not operating in any joy. And buddy, that gets to be a dark, hard place. That's a rough place to be. It's not glorifying to God. It's sin. And it's not good for men. And you know what the answer of Jesus Christ is going to be? It's, it's, it's not going to be indifference. And it's not going to be, oh, poor baby. It's going to be, look at what is. And don't be offended by me. It'll take on some weird stuff. It'll take on some weird stuff. Sometimes it, it, it causes people to doubt the way that John the Baptist doubted. And guys, look, look, once again, if it can get him, it can get me and it can get you. Sometimes it causes people to become bitter. And despise what the Lord is putting them through. Sometimes it causes people to doubt God's ability. They don't want to get bitter and they don't want to doubt He's God, and so it must be that He can't get the job done. I'll tell you what it was for me, what it looked like for me. It wasn't a lack of faith in Christ, it wasn't a lack of faith in His ability, and it wasn't a throw up your hands and quit. That may be what it looks like for you. It's all equally dangerous. But I can tell you what it looked like for me. What it looked like for me was John chapter 11. I know this isn't on the notes, and I promise I'm almost done. I've been trying not to, to keep you late. And John chapter 11 is the narrative of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And to give you just a little bit of background, the, Jesus has fled 
from Judea at this point because now they're we looked at when he fled at the beginning of his ministry today they tried to kill him well now at the end they're trying to do it again but they're getting way more organized about it and so he tells he tells his apostles he says look guys our friend Lazarus is sick it won't end in death and then a few days later he comes back and okay goes okay Lazarus is dead so let's go and they don't want to go because they're walking right into the mouth of the lion's den where they have just fled where the Jews are trying to kill them and what they're thinking is what you and I would be thinking look if we had done this three days ago and the dude was still alive and you could have healed him like you've healed all these other sick people then sure we'll risk going down there and getting our heads cut off but golly why are we going if he's already dead in chapter 12 um it says in verse 5 that now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And after that, he said to her, to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, there are there not 12 hours in the day? And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not with him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him up. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Like, like can't we get somebody else to wake the dude up? Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples. And why it had to be Thomas. Let us go also that we may die with him. He got to John in doubting the identity of Christ. It gets to some people in bitterness. It gets to some people um, in, in questioning God's ability. This is where it got me. It's not that I don't believe. It's not that I'm going to quit. What we'll just do is die. Because it seems like that's all that happens anyway. A joyless resignation. If you're tough, be careful. It'll take you to some dark stuff and you won't even know you're there. And so I sit there in my office one day. And I, I wrote down all the events of the last four years um, that I had this opinion of. Okay, we'll just go there and die. And as we're going to look tonight in First John about the nature of, of, of full joy... That includes being joyful in the means that God uses to bring about his good end, not just in the end itself. And the Lord said, you're going to rejoice in these things. And man, I, I literally could not do it. 
It's not because I didn't want to. It's because, as we've talked about so many times, buddy, when it comes to desire and emotion, you can't fake it. You can try to lie to yourself, but you're not going to lie to God. And if you're not really joyful about these things, then he's going to know that you're not actually rejoicing. That's the way it works. And so you find yourself asking that the Lord would produce in you something that is not there. I didn't know what to do except for what the man did when Jesus demanded faith of him that he didn't have. He said, Lord, I believe. Help me in my disbelief. And so that's what I prayed. I'd go down these things and I would look at each and every one of them and I could name them. But I won't take the time. And said, Lord, I rejoice in this. Help me in my lack of joy. God is not indifferent to you. It is not a fatalism that says, well, just grind it out till we're dead. That's not it. Having suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And guys, what I would like to tell you is that I made it to the bottom of that list and that the clouds broke open and the metaphorical rainbow came out and it was a shiny day and everything was hunky-dory and, and you know, I wish I could stand before you today and say, here's the deal. I saw it for what it was and having saw it, applied the prescription and kicked it in the teeth and here we are and here's the reality. is what it's been is a fight. I'm thankful for godly men. I'm thankful for godly men. But it's a fight. It's a fight that's winning. But it's a fight. And sometimes you're going to have to fight. And sometimes you go back to what Jesus said and you go, okay, look at what's there. Now ask yourself, are you offended by him? Not just in his person, not just in the good end that's coming, but in the way that he's chosen to get you there. When that way just piles up and piles up and piles up and piles up to the point that you just pray the phone doesn't ring. At all. I know that if it doesn't ring, you might not hear something good. But if it doesn't ring, you're not going to hear anything bad. Just don't ring. God is good in the midst of it. God is good in future goodness that is going to come out of it. And he is not indifferent to your suffering, but instead will come alongside and sanctify you in a way that can cause you to have supernatural joy in the midst of things that you would otherwise have no joy in whatsoever. So you can be one of those weirdo Christians that really can genuinely from the bottom of your heart rejoice in the midst of pain. Not put on a cheesy smile. The last thing I would say is this. So God is good, three subpoints we covered too. God is good currently in ways that you almost certainly do not realize. God is good in this. He's, he's doing good things. He's fulfilling Isaiah chapter 9. He's got bigger good things to come in the future and there are things good right now that you're not aware of. If all you read is Matthew chapter 4, then what you see is now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. Now, 
by expanding our view today into Luke and looking at the sermon that he preached at the synagogue in, in, in Nazareth, we, we get a bigger picture. We know there's more stuff going on. Guys, actually, there's a lot of stuff that went on. As a matter of fact, all the events of John chapter 3 and chapter 4. Between the temptation and his departure to Galilee is when Jesus met with Nicodemus. Having gone up to Jerusalem to the Passover, the Messiah being, being revealed to Israel, walking in authority to the temple and cleaning out the money changers, all of that happened in this period. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus and telling him that a man must be born again, that the wind blows where it may. So it is with the Spirit, that a man must be born both of water and the Spirit to have a portion in the kingdom of heaven. Guys, it was in this interim period that you don't see in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. That's when He said everything He said that we read earlier in 19 through 21 about shining the light in the darkness. And the response that is given. It was during this time that he returned by way of Samaria so that he could speak to the woman at the well. God is good. He's good in the midst of it. There's future good yet to come. And there is good that is occurring right now that's probably not on your radar or on your page. But the Lord is doing it. And he is not indifferent to your suffering. He's not. So don't be indifferent to it yourself. Don't wallow in it, and please, heaven forbid, don't, don't deny it. Don't just keep on keeping on. Because what that'll do is lead you to a place where you say, all right, let's load up and we'll go and die with him. Neither of those two outcomes bring the glory of God that is due his name to him. The one that does seeing Christ for who he is, being reminded of his goodness and his glory and allowing his strength to supply and to change us where needed that we may do what he's laid before us. Took way too much time today. Thank you for sitting with me through it. Let me, let me tell you, if, man, don't be Nazareth. Don't say, well, all that sounds good, but there's things about this that I find offensive, so I'm going to allow you to depart. Don't do that. Don't be offended at Christ. If you don't belong to him, you should accept him as Lord and Savior today. Please, please do. I pray you're encouraged. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we, uh, we come before your word, and it is daunting. Lord, it is big, and it shines the light in the darkness. Lord, it shines the light in the darkness of this world and shows the absolute difference, um, the absolute difference between what is yours and what is not, Lord. And it shows the difference between what is of the flesh and what is of the Spirit in us as individuals. And, Lord, we just pray that in sanctification you would be glorified. Lord, and I would like to pray that... That, that having recognized these things, that all of a sudden everything would get easy and, and there wouldn't be any more hard things in front of us, Lord, but we, instead we say this, Lord, we trust you and we take our joy in you in whatever means you bring about your sovereign will by. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.